The last few moments have been a beautiful introduction in many ways to the lesson of the morning. We have just sung some remarkably touching, compelling, powerful songs together. Songs about ringing out the message. Songs about praising and worshiping God with such fervor, such intrigue and interest. And yet today our subject, as you'll notice on the wall to my left, is simply the music of worship. I hope as we give study the opportunity to this matter this morning, there are a number of thoughts that will in fact be continually embedded so strongly in our thinking. Matters to help us appreciate that which we have done and that which we look forward to doing as a part of our worship. These introductory thoughts, I hope, will be for our utility over the next few moments. As we study the music of worship, these introductory matters, I hope, will present some of the questions that I hope you and I will be able to address over the next few moments. First of all, it goes without saying that worship is exceedingly important. Early on in the Bible, that message, that truth is set before us. We remember that there were two boys, Cain and Abel. What do you and I remember about their worship? God was well satisfied and pleased with that which Abel offered, but He was not satisfied with that which Cain did. And immediately we learn on practically the second or third page of the Bible that you just can't offer whatever you want to and expect the God of heaven to be pleased with it. Worship is exceedingly important. You'll notice following that, that truth has in fact been embedded all throughout the pages of the book of God. As we arrive at one of the initial moments of the life of Christ, at least in terms of the ministry, in Matthew chapter 4, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And so it is with respect to worship, the objective of it, the character of it, and the detailed specifics of it are all vital for our appreciation. Today, as you can see near the bottom, we'll turn our attention to the music of worship. We'll do so by making note of some of these things. Have you ever heard questions perhaps asked like these? What kind of music, if any, is appropriate for worship? Furthermore, is singing acceptable? What about other kinds of vocal music? Whistling, humming, yodeling, what about them? Furthermore, what about the accompaniment of a mechanical instrument? Is that endorsed by the Word of God? If so, in what way? And if not, may we understand again and appreciate the reason why. Finally, at the bottom, are there any restrictions that one might then appreciate relative to the Bible when it comes to the subject of the music of worship? Now, those questions are not nearly all that might be asked, but at least they set before us the intrigue of this subject. You'll notice the next slide continues then to ask us to note this. We are all well aware of the fact then that through the decades and yet even through the centuries there have been so many questions asked about the music of worship. Those questions perhaps highlighted by discussions and debates and controversies. Churches have split over it. There have been those who have been more than inviting of the inclusion of a piano or some other kind of mechanical instrument or music and others are staunchly opposed to it. You and I know that at least in the restoration movement, at first at least, there was a strong note of harmony on that subject. 
But the time came in the middle of the 1850s and yea, into the decades that followed in which one by one various congregations introduced it. To this very day in Midway, Kentucky, as you probably already know, there is a melodeon on display because it is at least on record, as far as we know, the first introduced mechanical instrument of music in the United States of America in the worship of the churches of Christ. Now, you and I all know very well what developed out of that. And may I say today, our interest is not merely to go back over the history again. Our interest is in many ways to turn to that book that's on your lap, or the one that's before you and me, and to ask one more time, what about this subject? One of the first things that I would ask each of us to keep in mind is this. In conversation with other individuals, friends, associates, co-workers, and others, sometimes the sentiment expressed relative to the usage of mechanical instruments of music is not correct. Have you ever heard someone make comments like these? Well, those Church of Christ folks, they're just against music. Those Church of Christ people just don't like music. May I say, that has nothing to do with why we have no mechanical instruments of music and worship. I suspect that in an audience like this one, there are very many, perhaps, who can play musical instruments, who maybe enjoy attending symphonic presentations or band concerts of one type or another. Those things have nothing to do with why we do not have a mechanical instrument of music in our worship. The answer is, again, far more profound in, in terms of that which the Word of God would put on display before us. You'll notice at the bottom... Our choice for not having any mechanical instruments of music is hinged on the verse that Brother Andrew read in our hearing a moment ago. It has nothing to do with your choice and mine. It has nothing to do with your preference or mine. It has everything to do with what has the God of heaven authorized. What has He authorized for the music of His worship? You and I are not permitted by Him to step one millimeter beyond whatever that limitation and bound may be. Aren't we told in that text again, verse 17 of Colossians 3, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. What is done in terms of music must then be done in accordance to the authority in the name of Christ, and so what does the New Testament say? What do those passages reveal about the music of worship? You'll notice then at the bottom, as I ask you to consider that matter of authority, we're going to devote the remainder of our lesson this morning to looking at the only verses in the New Testament in which music and worship is under discussion. And as we look at each and every one of them, when our goal shall be at the close of the lesson to draw a conclusion... Would you please study the passages with me? The first passage to which I would ask you to turn is in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians, the fifth chapter. In the heart of this book of Ephesians, Paul, of course, had addressed the church in Ephesus, and this was a congregation that, in fact, had been well known for a number of things. They had elders. Remember, the elders are the very ones that met with Paul in Miletus in Acts chapter 20. This was a well-solidly mature congregation in some regards. And yet in chapter 5 we read this. 
Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's easy to see then that is a part of that presentation to the ancient congregation in Ephesus. Statement was made, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Clearly music under some consideration is under discussion. May I invite you to notice a few points that might easily be made. First, worship truly has as its prime objective the adoration and exaltation of God. Remember, Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve, Matthew 14. That understanding of worship, though, does not preclude the mutual benefit that we each can extend to the other as a part of worship. So at the start of this verse, speaking to yourselves, a moment ago you and I sang, ring the message out. That's an exhortation to one another to live a holy and godly life by which we can testify to others the reality of our faith and the truth of the Bible. Using those occasions before us to speak to others, invite them, and help them learn the truth. As we sang that song, we encouraged each other. We exhorted one another in the way that's proper and right, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the greatest then failures in light of absenting ourselves from the services is the very fact that we aren't able to do that. When we don't gather with the saints, we can't speak to them because we're not where they are. And yet through our singing and through these discussions of a verse like that one, isn't it sweet to appreciate? We speak to one another. Not only that, note what comes next. So what were they to sing? It mentions psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We understand well what the psalms are. The Old Testament contains a book by that name. It has 150 of them in it. And so quite often the first century church, and yea, those that were well acquainted with Jewish history, they would literally sing some of the psalms. I suppose the most well-known ones are the set from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And yet as they sang those psalms, they were praising and adoring the God of heaven and encouraging themselves in the way to be faithful and true. But you'll notice in addition to that, there were hymns. Sometimes the first century church sang hymns. Now that's merely the word like an ode. Some compiled set of words that were presented by way of a, a, a tune that of course they could sing. You and I do that too. Sometimes as we appreciate someone has taken the opportunity to use a principle or a thought in the Bible and to build a song around it. And when we sing that, as long as it doesn't cause any distinction or confrontation to other Bible verses, we wholeheartedly appreciate the ability to sing those hymns. Finally, they're spiritual songs. One by one, as you look at all those things, the first century church was encouraged and, yea, fully given permission to sing these things because that brings me to the next thought. What were they to do with them? The text doesn't say they would read them. It doesn't say other matters characteristic of writing them on boards and displaying them. It says in that same verse, singing and making melody. They were singing these things. 
Can you just envision it? The worship of the church, you see, has changed very little for those that are faithful to the Word of God. We gather today and do the the same things they did 20 centuries ago. The first century church. They came together. They would have partaken of the Lord's Supper. They sang. They had a lesson preached to them. They also understood well the pertinence of prayer, and they gave as they were prospered. Isn't it interesting to think that we do today what they in Ephesus did 1950 years ago? That we do today what they did in Philippi 1940 years ago? That we do today exactly what they did in Colossae 1950 years ago? It's an overwhelming thought then about the constancy and the fidelity of those who are true to the Word of God. You'll notice they sang and made melody. Now, many have cast a spotlight on that phrase, making melody. For after all, here is the word singing, so what does it mean then to do something in addition, which is to make melody? Let's develop that over the next few moments. That word, make melody, in the original Greek was solo, P-S-A-L-L-O, solo. And on so many occasions, one might take note that that word literally means to twist to twitch, to pluck, to twang. And so one imagines the plucking of something. One imagines the the twitching of something. And therefore, in that particular category, one notices that many have found right there what they consider proof positive that the New Testament fully endorses the twitching of something like a guitar string or a piano string or a harp string or something like that. But might we take note, you can't stop at that point because look at how the verse ends. Singing and making melody in your heart. The prepositional phrase in your heart modifies the making melody. So whatever it is that making melody identifies must be taken into account relative to that prepositional phrase that modifies it. The fact is, as you and I study the word solo, we understand that. It always is such that the sentence, the language identifies that which is plucked, that which is twitched, that which is, in fact, made to move. In other words, the object that's twitched has to be specified in light of the verb that's employed. So, God, what is it you wish to be plucked? It says in your heart. May I ask you to notice the one and only instrument that is mentioned in that verse. What is to be plucked, if you please, are the heartstrings of Christians. What is to be twitched are the full-blown heartstrings of Christians who are expressing by way of their singing the heartfelt feelings of their life relative to the God of heaven. May I ask us to notice there is an instrument mentioned, but it's not mechanical. It's the heart of man. And we have no authority from that verse to twitch or pluck or twang anything else in our worship when it comes to singing. You might notice the prime audience is also detailed. For it says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When we sing, then we are in fact expressing the heartfelt feelings of our being to the God whom we worship and the God to whom we owe everything to the Lord. That's a very expansive verse then, isn't it? As it gives thought to the music of worship. 
it isn't the only one, though. And so in light of those comments, with those at least appreciated, let's look at the next one. In Romans 15, verse number 9, in the midst of this passage in which Paul, the peerless apostle, had some interesting things to say to the church in Rome, note the following statement near the end of that book. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. It isn't difficult to notice that here, as it is written, is a clue that Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, and in particular from Psalm 18, verse 49. And as that is quoted, notice the application that, that the inspired apostle made. It says, in the midst of this discussion about the opportunity of Christians to offer praise to God, he makes reference to the Gentiles, those who at one time were outside, of course, the, the wealth, the commonwealth of Israel. Paul even now exhorted the fact that here is the church of the Lord, who now in the New Testament era is such that praise to God can be offered not only by those who formerly were Jews, but even by those who formerly were Gentiles. It is with that in mind, he says, For this cause I will confess to thee. And that word confess literally means to offer praise. Paul says, I will give praise to God among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. Isn't it interesting that of all the verses of the Old Testament that made reference to some kind of mechanical instrument, Paul didn't quote any of them. On this occasion, he quoted Psalm 1849, in which the emphasis is on singing. I'll sing praise unto thy name. I'll sing unto thee. As you reflect on that one with me, isn't it amazing? Here was a church in Rome. And remember, there were some in that congregation very, very acquainted with ancient Jewish worship. And we know from the Old Testament the Jews did have mechanical instruments of worship in their mu of music in their worship. But you'll notice in this passage only singing was mentioned. Keeping that thought in mind, look at the next one. Another verse to which you and I can turn is the very one that served as part of our lesson text this morning in Colossians chapter 3 verse number 16. In many ways, this is a sister passage to the one in Ephesians to which we gave note a moment ago. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. As I had done before, I would invite you to notice a few details, a few of the specifics characteristic of the music of New Testament worship. First of all, what about this? What did the church in Colossae sing? Again, it's psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The same elements mentioned to the church in Ephesus. Are we gaining a bit of appreciation then that what the gospel proclaimed to the church in Colossae was the same message proclaimed to the church in Ephesus? You see, what Paul preached in the churches, he delivered one by one to all of them. There wasn't a unique gospel for the one place and a different one for somewhere else. Doesn't that give you and me a heightened sense of understanding that today what's involved in our worship here would be very familiar to those in India, 
Malaysia, Australia, France, Germany, anywhere else. Because the New Testament pattern is so specific. If you and I met with brethren in Germany, we might not understand all the words, I frankly admit, but we'd know very well what they were doing. When we met with brethren in Malaysia, we might not have a good understanding of the meanings of all of the words, but we'd know very well what was being done. That's one of the beautiful thoughts about the worship of the God of heaven, isn't it? It might be that you and I could then notice. In light of those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, so what were they to do with them? The text says, singing with grace in your hearts. There isn't any question what they did with them. They sang them. There was no reference at all to humming them, yodeling them, whistling them, playing them, reading them. They sang them. Today, aren't you thankful that we have voices that God has given us and that we can utilize them, we can implement them to His glory as we sing these songs of adoration to Him? They sang. Furthermore, what instrument did they play? It says, singing with grace in your hearts. Now, the heart was mentioned back in Ephesians 5. There was another reference to the existence and the importance of that. In a moment, we'll notice verses that also join in that discussion. But isn't it interesting? It says one more time that the prime audience is listed. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. At this point, we each might ask ourselves, Have I attended to that? Notice... That's not a spectator sport. It does not satisfy the commands of Scripture for me to come and listen to somebody else sing. Did I sing this morning? I'm commanded to. May you and I look forward to those opportunities as we lift our voices together following the commandments of passages like these. Notice finally, and I've saved this to last, at least in this passage, something incredibly important and interestingly presented is shown to us. It's back near the beginning of verse 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We all know about the importance of the Bible. It is that which is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. Psalm 119, verse 105. It is that which contains the very business and wisdom of life. John 6, verse 63. It is that which truly shall be opened at judgment. Revelation 20, 15. And you and I shall be judged out of it. But on this occasion it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now as you and I imbibe the word of God... Just like the Apostle John in Revelation 10, John, take this little book and eat it up. You and I are told to ingest the Word of God. Now that doesn't mean to literally tear it out and put ketchup on it and eat it. But it means to use it to guide and direct the thoroughness and fullness and completeness of life. But it goes on to say this, teaching and admonishing one another. That which we do in music of worship must be capable of teaching and admonishing. Whatever could be said about the music of worship, based on that verse, it is capable of, and in fact required to be, involved in both teaching and admonishing. So question, 
can a piano, no matter how finely it's played, teach or admonish? Can a drum, no matter how finely it's played, teach or admonish? Can any other mechanical instrument or music, no matter how finely it's played, how artfully and skillfully it's crafted and utilized, can it possibly teach or admonish? The answer is evident. The answer is no. And it seems to me as strongly as any verse in all the Bible, this one, as you take all the detailed characteristics and specifics of what's required of the music of worship, this precludes any mechanical instrument or music because it can't teach or admonish. Perhaps it goes without saying that as you and I look at a passage like this one, if we are committed and dedicated to the Word of God, then we must allow our music and worship to be no more than what God has specified and fully in harmony and in consistency with it. What about another one? We've only looked at three. You'll notice in Hebrews 2, verse number 12, the Hebrew letter also there in the heart of the New Testament. An interesting presentation is made, and may I simply ask us to note, let me read it and then a little background in, in consideration to it. I'll begin in verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. The Hebrew writer was addressing, again, that issue of Jew and Gentile. There were those who were of Jewish background who looked rather condescendingly upon the Gentiles, and in no doubt, in many cases, the Gentiles felt a little bit distanced by the Jews. And yet the Hebrew writer, in asserting that God through Christ has made all of them one, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, there's no longer bond nor free, there's no longer male nor female, Galatians 3.28. In this place, he highlights in emphasizing the oneness and the unity of the church, Verse 12 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. So these brethren are involving all who are Christians. He's not singling out any special group or only one of particular background. And he says, In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. So where's this praise being sung? He said in the church. Here's another verse that identifies there's no hint of the church playing anything. The church was here singing praise. And so the church in Ephesus was doing this. The church in Colossae was doing this. And now wherever these churches of the Hebrews were, they were doing this as well. The unity, the impressiveness, the central message that attached to their singing You'll notice at the bottom, there's the express mention in this place of that Greek word singing. Just as surely as there was in the previous ones we noted as well. Aren't you excited about the capability of so easily understanding what God has taught? I can sing. If I do anything else, then I'm not doing what He has said. Notice also that perhaps only a couple more and we will have exhausted all of them. How about looking with me later in the same book to Hebrews 13? The closing chapter of that book. 
we notice there it says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. As the Hebrew brethren were exhorted and encouraged to remain steadfast and faithful to God, we find on this occasion they were encouraged and exhorted to offer to God the fruit of their lips. He didn't say the fruit of hands. He did not say the fruits of other things that might result from the mechanical instrument of music. It was the fruit of their lips. And it says they were to offer it continually. So may I ask, would it be appropriate for us to assemble at the worship hour like this and to have no mechanical instruments, but maybe that for some other cause we assemble on a Thursday night and in a worshipful moment we're happy to let someone play a banjo or a guitar or a drum or a harp? Brethren, that wouldn't do either. You see, we're not in position in any kind of worshipful spirit to think then that God would be pleased with such things. We notice... In these passages, there is but one more. Back to 1 Corinthians 14. I find it a bit intriguing, don't you, that we have so many New Testament congregations mentioned. Ephesus, Colossae, the Hebrews, Romans. Now back to 1 Corinthians. I believe, among other things, we can conclude the central truth of the message that we're discussing today. Chapter 14 of that book is in the midst of that discussion of the spiritual gifts. But in that we read this. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. And I will sing with the understanding also. It's important to notice they in Corinth knew how to play musical instruments, mechanical ones in nature. Remember, ancient Corinth was known for so many things and there were lots of professional music players in that city because music was used in the worship of Aphrodite and some of those Greek gods. So they knew in the city a lot about playing music. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul even referenced them, but never in the context of Christian worship. And he says here, I'll sing with the Spirit. And I'll sing with the understanding. So what did the church in Corinth do for music as a part of its worship? Not more than seven verses earlier, he'd mentioned instruments, but they never played them in worship. May you and I notice we now live over 19 centuries this side of that message to Corinth. But as we give thought to it, notice the Word of God endures forever, 1 Peter 1.25, and it hasn't changed. And so as we come to the bottom of that slide, let me comment briefly to this effect. First, we have looked this morning at every single New Testament reference to the music of worship. There hadn't been a single exception. Now, you might quickly in your mind consider Matthew 26. It's true, there Jesus went out with His apostles, but they sang on the Mount of Olives, but that was before the church was established. Even so, they only sang. My point quickly then is we've looked at every single New Testament verse. Has there been any inclusion, any hint of inclusion as to the usage of mechanical instrument or music in worship? Not one. One has to even stretch to even find a way to try to wedge it in somehow. It just isn't there. 
And so it is that that bottom, that bottom statement on that slide, the only instrument that you and I are given authority to twitch or to strum is the heart. There is no other. It is with that in mind that we'll close our lesson with these summary statements and we can obviously be rather brief about them. As far as the music of worship, it is unaccompanied a cappella singing. That's it. The music of Christian worship is unaccompanied a cappella singing. And as you and I participate in that, we understand that's what God said that He wants. It doesn't matter what men may want. It doesn't matter what men may prefer. That's what God wants. And praise be unto God. He's told us what He wants. And we have the capability of doing what He wants. What's more, we appreciate the only instrument played is the human heart. Thirdly, every Christian is commanded to participate in this. All of us have the luxurious blessing of singing. Nextly, we must sing with the Spirit and with the understanding. So our heart is in it, but we do so understanding those words we sing are for the purpose of adoring and praising God. Nextly, as we sing those praises in exaltation of the name of God, we also benefit and encourage each other because we teach and admonish. That aspect of singing must never go unappreciated. Finally, we notice, even as we highlighted it earlier, it's worth a restatement. The Jews knew very well about playing instruments. They even did so in the Old Testament, but it appears it was not with God's approval. But we appreciate that as they did, they never carried those over into the New Testament. The Romans... Colossians, the Ephesians, those in the book of Hebrews, none of them, even though they knew about it under Jewish worship, they did not carry that over into Christian worship. Why? Because God never authorized it. Today, may I submit to you, the music of Christian worship is rather plainly presented. There's no reason to have any questions or doubts about it. We sing... Yodeling isn't authorized, neither is whistling or humming to answer that question we raised back at the beginning of the lesson. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. A song about you and me being invited to the Lord. A song that is a convenient time. It might be there's somebody in the audience today who has never become a Christian. You have never relinquished control of your life to the very one who died for you. Why do you delay? Why do you wait? Tomorrow may never come. May I submit today is the day of salvation, and that's the very words of 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If we could assist you today, and we'd be delighted to do it, that which is demanded of you is this. Believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and allow yourself to be immersed, baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have known the faithfulness at one point in life, but today you aren't faithful any longer, you've allowed things to bring matters into your life that are such a very poor reflection of what Jesus wants you to be, why not today come back to your first love? If you will come before us, with it, of course, being a matter known publicly, make confession of those things to God, repent of them. We'll pray to God on your behalf, and God's promised to forgive you.
if today we could be of help to anyone in the audience in those ways, I hope that this song of encouragement will be an appropriate time, and you'll come even now while together we stand and while we sing.